Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, your revelation to us, both in your word and your son. We pray that we would be able to hear what you would have us to hear and receive what you would have us to receive and to do as you would have us to do. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to begin today by recalling a sermon, the beginning of a sermon I preached back in in February. Today is August 6th, and August 6th is the feast, as we said earlier, the Feast of the Transfiguration. But the last Sunday of Epiphany, which this year was in February, is called Transfiguration Sunday. So twice in our liturgical year, we have a remembrance of the Transfiguration. And it is reasonable to ask why we would have a Transfiguration Sunday and a Feast of the Transfiguration at two different points of the year. So I want to say, begin by just saying a word of why this is. And it was a little hard. I wondered this for several years, even as a priest. And it was a little hard to get to the bottom of it. But here, I think, is why we have two remembrances of the Transfiguration. It seems that there were two traditions that developed over the early centuries of the church in connection of the uh, two traditions surrounding transfiguration that were in connection with the two holy days on which we remember the crucifixion. We remember the crucifixion especially on Good Friday, right before Easter. And there is also the Feast of the Holy Cross, which is September 14th. And the reason that transfiguration is connected to these remembrances of the crucifixion is because from the very earliest days, the church taught that the transfiguration took place 40 days before the crucifixion. So 40 days before Christ went to the cross, he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And so 40 days roughly before these two holy days in which we remember the crucifixion, we celebrate the Transfiguration. And how we celebrate and remember the Transfiguration on these two days take their flavor, if you will, from the emphasis of both Good Friday and the Feast of the Holy Cross. Of course, Good Friday is the most somber and, if you will, the darkest day of our year. It is the day we dress in black and remember our sin that put Christ upon the cross. And so the Transfiguration, the Sunday of Transfiguration uh, on the last Sunday of Epiphany, right before we go into Lent, is a preparation for that day. We are about to enter into Lent. And before Christ goes to the cross, before the disciples go through their darkest days of their life, Jesus is transfigured before them. And he says... I'm going to give you something to help you as you enter into the valley of the shadow of death. As you enter into these dark days that you don't even know you're going to go into yet, I'm going to give you something that you can hold on to, a remembrance of my glory, a promise that at the other end of this valley is the glory that you see now. So hold on to it. And as we go into Lent, we are given that picture as well. Lent's supposed to be a difficult time. It's supposed to be a time when we come before God with our sins and say, please God, help me overcome these sins. We fast and mourn 
during Lent as we approach Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And the transfiguration is an aid, is a help as we enter into that valley, that shadow. Not so with the Feast of the Holy Cross. The Feast of the Holy Cross doesn't, is, is, is less of an emphasis on our sin that put Christ on the cross, but on the victory that comes from the cross, the life that comes from the cross. In the East, this day is celebrated by placing fresh basil and flowers around the cross. Basil, because the word for basil comes from the Greek word basileos, which means king. A remembrance that our king was lifted up, the son of man was lifted up, was exalted on the cross. And our life and all that is good that comes to us comes through his death on the cross. It is a celebration of victory and goodness. And so too, today, the feast of the transfiguration is not one of just preparation for hard times. It is one of celebration, of victory, of the fact that the transfiguration on Mount Tabor was not just Jesus showing off. Hey, look at me. He was saying, my transfiguration is promise of your transfiguration. This is for you. What I am doing here on earth is inviting you into union with me. And this is who I am. This glory I give to you. This is the glory I'm welcoming you into. This union that I have with the Father, I'm bringing you into that as well. It is yours. Rejoice in it. Revel in it. So twice in the year we remember the transfiguration. Both in its preparation for hard times, it helps us get through, and in the rejoicing in the fact of what Christ has given to us. Today we remember that this transfiguration is a promise in both the possibility and the desirability of change, of transformation in us. And that is a reminder we cannot get too often. We need to be reminded that more than just twice a year. We need to be reminded regularly that we can and we should desire the change and the transformation that Christ has to offer. Change, of course, is a bit of a lightning rod of a word. It is loved and idolized by half the population and feared and demonized by the other half. For some, there is who we, uh, some of us are perpetually dissatisfied with our lot in life, with how we are. And so we seek a change of any sort, change of house, change of car, change of job, change of worship, change of spouse, something new, something new to get me away from where, where, where I am now because this isn't good enough. Just give me change. And as the changes come, there is a growing despair that the change we really long for is impossible to find. 
because none of those changes bring us satisfaction. It is amazing, though, how perpetually effective the word change is as a campaign slogan for the party that is not currently in power. Just change. I promise you I'm going to bring change. And we're all like, yes, just change. Just something. Something different. Because many of us just want something different. The other half of the population may recognize that, well, things aren't quite what they should be, but things as they are is what I'm used to. I know this. Yeah, maybe I have this problem with sin, but I've gotten comfortable with dealing with it. It's what I know. If change comes, who knows? It could be for the worse. So I'd rather not change at all. Just let me live as I am. Let me stay like this. It is for people in both camps that we are given the transfiguration. Jesus saying, the change you're after is possible to achieve. It is there for you. The change you really need in your life, the transformation you really need in your life, it's possible. I promise you, I can give that to you. Deliverance from sin, purification, the glory that we see in the light of Christ. I can give that to you. I promise you I can. And you'll find it in me. Not in a new car, not in a new house, not in a new job. You'll find that in me. And it's desirable. I did not come to leave you as you are. I did not come just to say, just muddle through these few years on earth. Just put up with your sin for now. No, you can. And it is desirable. It's a good thing to change, to transform as I transform you. You should desire it. Our struggle with this often is that well, we don't, just don't seem to see it in this world, in ourselves very much. Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain, and one moment there's Jesus looking like Jesus. Next moment there's Jesus looking like God. It just happened just like that. And if Jesus wants us to be transformed in His glory, why don't we see it? Why do I seem to be perpetually struggling? Why don't I see myself having that change? Why don't I see myself being transformed? Why don't I see that loved one being transformed? How can I possibly get there? It sounds nice. And sure, 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 I know, I trust, I believe that someday in glory in heaven, then I will, yeah, I'll be transformed then. But man, it seems like I need transformation now. I need that change now. I'm not going to make it. In that sense, you could look at that transfiguration and be discouraged by it. Because that was Jesus. And he says that's for me. But man, I don't seem to experience it. Let me attempt to answer the struggle with a story. 
If you've ever been to New Hampshire, you have noticed, if you have aware of anything, how prominent the old man of the mountain is in New Hampshire. His face, the old man of the mountain is a, is a face profile on, that was on the edge of a cliff. And it's on their license plates, it's on their road signs, everywhere you look. It's a state symbol. Everywhere you look, the old man of the mountain is the profile of a, it looks just like a face. Well, in 2003, unfortunately, the old man of the mountain fell off the mountain. And he no longer exists. The, the face just fell right off the side of the mountain. And if you go now, there's a place in New Hampshire where the cliff is up there. And they have, I don't know, you know, half a mile from the mountain or something like that. They have footprints you can stand in. And a pole right here that you look up. And if you're, that's a series of footprints. If you're, it says if you're like five foot five, you stand in these footprints. If you're six foot, you stand in these footprints. You look at this pole, and it's got a profile at the top of the pole. And it sort of reflects the face of the man on the mountain there. And you can look at it and say, oh, okay. I can sort of see that. So it's a way of memorializing the old man on the mountain in New Hampshire today. But the old man on the mountain was memorialized many, many years ago in a story, far better than footprints in a pole, was memorialized in a story by Nathaniel Hawthorne called The Great Stone Face. It was written around 1850. And in this story, there is a boy named Ernest. And Ernest was raised right at the foot of the mountain, right at the foot of the Great Stone Face. And from his earliest ages, he looked at the face on the mountain and he fell in love with it. And he told his mother, if ever I saw a man who had the face of the face of the man on the mountain, I would love him dearly because that's a beautiful, good face. And his mother told him, well, Ernest, there is a legend, a legend as old as the valley and the mountain itself, which says that someday there will come a man who was, is from this area, and his face will look just like the face of the man of the mountain. And this man will be the greatest and noblest personage in the world of his time. And Ernest, well, no one else really believed it. For from time immemorial, people had told this legend, and no one believed it was true, but Ernest did. And he said, Mom, I hope to live to see this man someday. And his mother said, well, maybe you will. So Ernest grew up. He was not a particularly remarkable young man. As a boy, he was dutiful. He did his work. He was good to his mother. But in his free time, what he liked above all else was to sit and look at the great stone face. It seemed to be an odd thing for most people that he would do this, but he did. And as a very young man, though, one day, there came the rumor that one of the greatest men in the world was coming back to the valley. A man who had been born in the valley, but had left and then made great wealth, had become the richest man in the world, and everything he did turned to gold. And now he was one of the most famous and greatest men in the world, and he was returning to the valley to live out his last years and there were some who were hopeful that maybe this man indeed was the fulfillment of the legend. And so he returned and there was a great crowd of people who lined the road as he was coming back down. And Ernest was in the crowd and he could hear as he was coming the people saying, It's him. And look, 
He looks just like the great stone face. His image is the very, his face is the very image of the face on the mountain. As he came closer, Ernest, his excitement grew. And as he looked, though, he was disappointed because he knew, he who looked most at the great stone face knew that there was no real likeness there. And over time, as the man aged and then died, it became clear to everyone in the valley they had been wrong. He wasn't really the great, the, the answer to the legend. Ernest continued to grow, and, and as, as a young man, he worked hard, but he was really considered a simpleton. Because once again, he, he worked hard, he earned his living, but he just wouldn't stop meditating, looking at the great stone face. Spent all this time, and people thought it was just a bit too strange. He respected his work, but he was quiet and just loved looking at the face. Later, a few years later, uh, there was the return of another son of the valley. Now, a greater even than before. This was a great general, a man who had worn great fame on the battlefield, and now... He was the most famous warrior in the world, and he was returning home. And, of course, this must be the man promised by the legend. And once again, as he arrived, the people saw him and said, It's it. It's him. It's the man. And Ernest looked and said no. And he was once again disappointed. Many more years went past. And as Ernest grew older, the perception of him changed. Because as people came to know him, and to talk to him, they found incredible wisdom in him. It was amazing the things Ernest would say, the truth he could give them, the depth of his understanding of the world and humanity. And people liked simply talking to him and hearing from him. And so he began to become well-known as one of the wiser people in the valley. Once again... Several years later, another man, this time a great politician, was rumored to be possibly the next president. Great man, gifted in oratory. Once again, same thing. He comes, everyone says, there he is. It's the man. It's the one, the face on the mountain. And Ernest looks and says, no, it's not him. And he says that to a fellow passerby there, guy standing by him, it's, ah, it's not him. To which the, the man responds, well, so much the worse for the, st the, the stone face. This is what we really want. This is what we're really after here. Once again, after a few years, everyone realizes, no, this is not the man. And Ernest gets old, becomes an old man, gray-haired old man. And now he's famous, not just in the valley, but his fame has spread far and wide as one who is so wise. Near the end of his life, there comes another man born in the valley, this time a poet. A poet who is able, as no one else was able to do, to put nature in words so that you could see it better in your mind's eye than you could even with your own eyes. Or to put down the human, the, the, the depths of humanity into a poem that would instruct you and teach you about humankind. And Ernest read his poems and loved them. 
And so I've never read anything like this. This man comes from a valley. Surely this is the man. Finally, this is the man who will bear the resemblance of the great stone face. And he loved to sit under the mountain, look at the mountain, and to read the poems in the evening. And one day a man shows up at his house and sits down with him and begins to talk with Ernest. And Ernest is amazed by the the wisdom of this man. And the man is amazed by the wisdom of Ernest. And Ernest says, who are you? And the man points to the book of poems and says, I'm the man who wrote those poems. I'm the poet. And Ernest looks at the man's face with excitement and looks at the great stone face with disappointment because it's not the man. And that evening, Ernest and the poet go for a walk and there's a people who've gathered around, as people often do, to come and hear Ernest speak. And Ernest speaks to them. And as he's speaking, the poet looks at Ernest and looks at the great stone face and tells all the people, this is the man. Ernest is the one. Look at his face. Look at the great stone face. They are one and the same. And all the people who had lived with Ernest for years looked at Ernest and looked at the great stone face and then saw that the poet was right. That Ernest, Ernest had the face of the great stone face on the mountain. And Ernest then took the arm of the poet, walked him home, still hoping someday to find the man who was wiser than he, who reflected the man in the mountain. This is a bit of a romantic story, not quite as dark as Hawthorne's other romantic stories, but it is a romantic story and perhaps somewhat simplistic, but it carries great truth. Ernest was transformed through a lifelong devotion to the great stone face. A life of looking there, meditating there. So we too are transformed by a lifelong devotion to Christ. There is really no other way to it. There is no get-rich-quick scheme that transforms us overnight, that sanctifies us right now. There is no change of position or anything else that will make us, form us into the image of Christ now other than a lifelong devotion to looking to Christ. Ernest spent his time gazing at the face On Mount Tabor, the father says, This is my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Here the image is not gazing, but listening. Listen to him. Spend your life listening to him. And as you do that, this transfiguration will become yours. Listening means putting myself under authority. When I say to my children, one of my children, you need to listen to me. I'm not just saying, you need to actually hear the words I'm saying. What am I saying when I say, you need to listen to me? I'm saying, you need to receive and be under my authority. 
You need to do what I tell you to do. Because that is the way that you will mature and you will grow to be the man or woman that you're supposed to be, to be under authority. So the Father is saying to all of us, listen to him, be under his authority. Put yourself in submission to him. That is the way you will mature and grow to be the man or woman that you're supposed to be. Listen. Always be in a position of listening to him, of being under his authority. But it's not just a command. It is an encouragement to indeed also hear the words he says. To meditate on the words and life of Christ. To spend time with him wherever we find him. Where do we find him? In the word? In the Bible? To spend time with it? To know it well? And there will be many who say, you're just spending too much time. It's a little bit weird to spend that much time listening to the word. But it is where wisdom will come. We find him in the church His body on earth, we should be there. In the sacraments, we find him. In his people, we find him in the hearts of his people. Even those who have gone long before us. Thus the importance of an all saints day. Where we recognize we still listen to Christ as he has spoken to his people from the beginning of his church. We listen, receive what he has to tell us through them and we be patient we be patient God works slowly but he has promised to transform and transfigure us and he has not said I'll just do it later he says I've begun it I've begun the work now listen to me I promise you I will transform you you may not know it you may not see it Ernest didn't and probably, that's probably good for us that we don't, we don't see it. How proud we would grow if we did. How focused we would be on ourselves. How much time would Ernest spend looking in the mirror at his own face instead of the face on the mountain? It is not us for us to see. It is for us to listen and grow. And God says, as you do that, I promise you, I will bring the change in you that you so desire, the change that you need, the transformation. I will make you like my son. I will finish the work at some point, but I've begun the work now. Listen to me. And so today, on this Feast of Transfiguration, we are reminded once again that he can and he will transform us. And we are encouraged to open our ears and our hearts to hear him as he does it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.